Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. So joining us today on our podcast, we have Eric Holthouse, and he is the author of The Future Earth. And Eric, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Of course. Uh, so this week is Climate Week. Um, there are the wildfires, the wildfires going on in California right now. Um, at least here in New York, it's unseasonably chilly for this time of year. So even though this is obviously a constantly relevant topic, it feels like now is a particularly relevant time to be having this conversation with you. Yeah, definitely. We just had a uh, first ever uh, tropical storm using the Greek alphabet make landfall in, in the United States as well. So we have already run out of our, our name list of storms this year, <laughs> and there's still two and a half months left in the hurricane season. So it's just sort of anyone's guess at this point what else is going to happen this year. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> So since the premise of your book is sort of that it's this, it's supposed to be the first hopeful book on climate change. Um, before I even started the book, one of the first things I thought I was going to ask you was if there's sort of a complacency about allowing ourselves to be hopeful about this. Um, but right from the first pages of the book, it's apparent that you yourself are definitely not complacent about it. You <laughs> take this very seriously. You spend the first maybe 70 pages just talking about how serious the current situation is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely, for sure. I think that is really, to me, the sweet spot of climate communication in this era of emergency. You know, we've we've waited sort of 30 years after the first widespread warnings in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, we are so far down the pike at this point that you have to meet this moment with all of the grief and trauma that has happened over the last 30 years. You know, some of us have lived our entire lives knowing that the the climate um, was warming and that, um, you know, some of my very earliest memories are of seeing those pictures of the ozone hole and hearing about acid rain and all that stuff. And, and um, I have really never known a world that was not in an ecological catastrophe. So, it's it's something that I have lived with and reckoned with my entire life. And I know that, uh, you know, folks that are 20, 20 years younger than me who are in mm-hmm. college right now 
um, seeing all of this happen, um, not knowing what their future is going to be like, we have to be able to acknowledge that pain um, in order to even start the conversation, I think, at this point. Definitely. It's extremely overwhelming. Um, and one of the things your book does so well is that you sort of lay out this battle plan for what we can do, how we can handle this problem. Um, but of course, um, in the book, it you know, because because of when you're writing it and the unique circumstances that have happened, um, it doesn't really take into account the current global pandemic that we are facing. Um, so does this pandemic, does that throw off the projections you make in the book in any way? How does, how does that affect what you, you know, laid out? That's a great question. And I honestly don't think it changes anything that I have in the mm -hmm. book. I think that, um, I think that, you know, I spend a lot of time um, previewing the 2020s as this time of emergency and constant change and uncertainty and not knowing, um, kn knowing that the past is broken and that we can't continue that system, but also not knowing at all what's coming next. And that is exactly what, you know, has happened in 2020, even far, far beyond what I imagined in this book. You know, I wrote this as sort of a definitely not a best case scenario, but more of like, a, this is realistically what I think will need to happen uh, or what could happen um, given the urgency of the, of, of, uh, of the action that's required to reverse climate change. Um, those actions have happened this year. You know, we have, we have transformed society far quicker than what I thought was going to be possible. And even what I thought was reasonable to lay out in the book. And so if anything, I think that what has happened in the real world of 2020 this year has, has shown that um, the changes that we need to make um, to address the climate emergency um, are definitely possible and that we, we, are a, we are capable of acting at a, a huge scale to tackle problems that pose an existential threat to us. Could you elaborate on some of those changes for our listeners um, that are, are in the works in this year? Sure, yeah. So, so what I have in the book um, was that we would sort of um, be hit with these multiple simultaneous disasters, which really has happened in some ways. You know, I talk mm -hmm. about wildfire emergency in the book. I talk about a record-breaking hurricane season. I talk about, um, I talk about um, continued um, sort of marginalization of folks based on um, race and economic status uh, all around the world. And those stories of those people not being adequately told. So, um, so I think, you know, all of that has actually happened and we're doing it uh, on top of um, all the other crises that are happening in the world. But I think that, um, that what would need to happen at this point is to take concrete steps in our democracies um, mm -hmm. to give people who have been historically marginalized real power for potentially the first time in some cases. And I'm talking about um, indigenous people whose treaties are continuing to be ignored and violated and um, people um, people uh, that that are experiencing the climate crisis around the world um, having a seat at the global negotiating table 
um, where historically their voices have also been marginalized in in favor of the uh, sort of industrialized countries that have caused the climate problem in the first place. So I'm imagining um, local scale um, uh, sort of um, fixes to democracy. So direct democracy, sort of um, more um, uh, decentralizing power structures. Um, and I'm not a political scientist, so I don't know exactly what um, is the best policies to take to do that. that. But I know that, that um, the way change will happen is by listening to different voices and prioritizing different voices. And we saw that in the, in the youth climate movement. Um, and it is sort of unfortunate that that, um, that movement has been sidelined by all the rest that has happened this year, but they are still active. They're still doing amazing work to sort of make sure that their voices are heard and voices of, of future generations from around the world. They're no longer future generations, they're current generations. They're people that are alive right now that can vote, that their voices matter. Uh, so I think prioritizing um prioritizing voices that have been marginalized i think is my main focus in in the early 2020s of what needs to happen in order to get climate change um the this attention that it deserves mm -hmm. and that um focus on marginalized voices um has definitely been happening in the in the book you do mention um if i'm remembering correctly um part of your projection is that there would be these mass protests people um that which has happened this year, um, but it's sort of been focused more on the issue of police brutality, particularly in the US, um, which is good, obviously, for all of that. And one of the things your book does really well is how you um, include marginalized people in your solution and that it's not just about stopping climate change for the sake of stopping climate change. It's also we need to change these systems to make sure they include everybody. And that's how, you know, we create this better world. Um, mm -hmm. So we have that on the one hand, but on the other hand, you know, in this pandemic, we have people in the U.S. who can't be convinced to wear masks. Um, yeah. So do you see people down the line really coming together in the way you describe on climate change specifically in a sort of large scale global way? You know what? I think it's going to have to happen eventually. I, I think mm -hmm. that um, as we're seeing this year, that disasters uh, are undeniable at this point. And I would carefully use that word because um, although uh, uh, fossil fuel interest and people who have sort of given um, uh, climate disinformation for decades still have powerful voices, there's still, you know, um, powerful forces in our democracy to, to sideline science. Um, I think that they are increasingly irrelevant in the sense that science will ultimately win. You know, there's no mm -hmm. way to negotiate with the fact that a virus, an airborne virus will spread more if you don't take precautions to prevent it. Or there are no ways to argue against the fact that if you reduce uh, or if you in if you increase the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, the temperature will increase on the planet. So you can't fight that by wishing it away or pretending it doesn't exist. So um, there are real consequences that are getting more and more pronounced um, in uh, for for folks who don't 
act according to the science. And I think it's getting more and more transparent that large changes are inevitable, you know, whether it is um, for good or for bad. So I'm choosing to focus in this book on what would happen if those uh, those changes, if all that chaos resolves in a way um, where we choose um, this positive future. Um, I think a lot of other folks have spent a lot of time imagining what would happen if we don't make those choices. And so I'm just trying to be explicit here of saying, um, yes, there's not really a great chance that we have that we're all going to turn around in time. But mm -hmm. if we do, we're going to have to do the work to imagine what it's going to look like. So, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not even convinced that <laughs> what I've written <laughs> here is actually going to happen. You know, I probably give us like a 30 or 40 percent chance of doing the right thing. But we have to believe that it's still possible because it is. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a bleak outcome, but <laughs> important to think about. Yeah, exactly. Um, so now you said earlier that you're not a political scientist, but I'm going to ask you a political question here for a second. Um, so obviously we have the U.S. 2020 presidential election coming up. How much do you think the future of the climate depends on this election specifically? Because we are only one country in the world, but sure. we are a country that does have a large influence. Well, I think what I've been saying recently is that the change is going to have to happen no matter who's president. That doesn't mean the election's not important. But it does mean that the change, uh, the scale of change that's necessary is far beyond what either candidate is talking about. So, but those changes are more likely to happen it, with one candidate versus the other candidate. Clearly, if you have a candidate that is denying the problem even exists, you're not going to be able to make very much and actively rolling back uh, climate and environmental protections. Um, it's harder to make progress, but those, that progress still needs to happen no matter who is president. Um, I think um, I think some of the the organizing work that has uh, that that groups like the Sunrise Movement is taking now, um, sort of aligning directly with the movement for Black Lives, um, mm -hmm. focusing on racial justice as one of the main avenues of talking about what transformative change on climate looks like. That has has been something that has happened in 2020, in the real world 2020, that, um, <laughs> that has aligned, I think, for the very first time in history alongside what climate scientists have been saying all along. So we finally have a political coalition that's capable of, of demanding change on the scale that scientists say is necessary. And that is true in 2020, no matter, <laughs> you know, if you look at the headlines, it's sort of objectively one of the worst years in the last hundred years <laughs> in the world <laughs> history. Uh, we've done that in, in that context of a world falling apart. And that, that, that coalition has come together that now has real power. Mm -hmm. So in other words, this um, this election, yes, it's important, but um, a Donald Trump victory does not necessarily mean the end of the world. A sure. Joe Biden victory does not necessarily mean everything is saved. There's still going to be work either way that can yeah. and be done. And that's the main point, I think, hopefully, of this entire book is that it's never okay to give up, that it's never going to be safe. It's never going to go away in our lifetimes. And that is not a very pleasant message to hear. But that is the message of 
of sort of what um, a really a revolution means is that in order, you know, if 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 what um, if we believe what climate scientists are saying is that this is a multi-generational problem and it's going to take, um, you know, a very long time to repair the damage that has already been done. But that also means we have to have this long-term vision and a very, very short and urgent focus on radical action immediately at the same time. And that's a very difficult thing, I think, for a lot of people to wrap their heads around. Mm -hmm. And an another helpful thing about the book is after this, you know, sort of projection you lay out at the end, you have some helpful action items that people can take. Um, so my next question is, is there anything in there specifically that you would recommend for students, specifically college age? Sure. Yeah, I think that um, uh, my main recommendation for everyone, but specifically for college age students, is to um, to realize that you're you're not alone and uh, uh, in in what you're feeling and the sort of um, despair that you feel about climate change. Mm -hmm. I feel like if you're listening to this or if you are thinking of of if you're an instructor thinking of using this book for for teaching or if you're wanting to buy it for your own use, I think that um, that's the main message that runs throughout the book is that. Um, Every single person is necessary and needed and will bring a unique um, presence to this movement. And every single person um, has the capability of, of, of creating radical change. Um, that is, that's really sort of what you will find if you um, sort of bravely and courageously set out to have conversations about climate with your friends or with your classmates or with your instructors or with your students. I think that is, um, that is, that is a message that, that meeting this problem with the whole human perspective of, of, of teaching about climate change as something that is happening to you, not just a scientific thing to study, um, mm -hmm. really where we are right now. I think, I feel like that is the message that, has the best chance of resonating with people. Mm -hmm. Well said. Um, so on a lighter note, our final question for you. Um, so since this podcast is primarily for teachers and their students, we mm -hmm. asked this question of all of our guests. Who was your favorite teacher? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you for asking. <laughs> um, I think, honestly, um, I had uh, a meteorology professor in college this is the one that first comes to mind. Um, uh, this was at the University of Oklahoma in 2004, and it was really not uh, a time where climate change was discussed in public at all. It was still sort of like a taboo topic in, you know, in any sort of professional setting. It was sort of thought of as an activist concern and it wasn't really even in a meteorology grad school program it wasn't ever considered something that was worthy of discussion in our classrooms and i had a and i had a teacher who just said um i'm gonna teach a three-week inter intercession on this topic because i know it's important enough for us to talk about and he did it on his own time i, I mean it was condoned by the university like you were able to get credit for it 
but mm -hmm. he sort of he took us on field trips he introduced us personally to contacts that he had made professionally he legitimized for me i think for the very first time that this was a topic that i could think of as a scientist and as a person and it's really sort of come through for me um his name is david caroli and he now he worked for a time worked for the australian government in their in um in their climate change uh division um but yeah he has done a lot of work over the last uh 15 or 20 years in my mind um to be one of those voices of saying that it's okay to to talk about um this um even when your colleagues tell you it's not mm -hmm. That is, that's really great. And also a, obviously a very topical answer. Um, well, Eric, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a great conversation to have. Thank you so much for having me. All right, well, you enjoy the rest of your day. All right, you too, thank you. Thanks, bye. bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.